Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of Future Imagined, a brand new foresight podcast powered by MGS Insights. I'm Joe Lapore. I lead global foresight for North America. As we continue to explore the five shifts in the transform next normal, in this episode, we're going to talk about the fun stuff, rebellion, exploration, and creativity, diving into the joy of misbehaving. This shift is all about our need to feel, to experience, to reward ourselves after a time of extended restriction, uncertainty, and a little bit of selflessness. Put simply, it's time to break some rules. Our guest today will help us to explore what individuality and identity exploration will look like in the future. We'll speak about the changes and how people will be able to enjoy themselves, to experiment and to express themselves in the next normal and what kind of creative opportunities lie waiting for us to transform human experiences. I'm Billy. I'm from Chicago. I'm a creative account lead at BBDO, an ad agency in Chicago. I'm Jonathan Wan, director of global marketing at Japan Airlines. I was based in Tokyo just a year ago, but I am right now in Singapore. My name is Trevor Sedano. I'm a senior engagement manager with Ipsos Strategy 3, currently in my Brooklyn apartment, but we're based out of New York. It's really lovely to have you all here. I think that we're going to have a robust and fun conversation today, spanning across what we could be making and creating out of this time of exploration and discovery, as well as how we can be speaking to our consumers, better understanding them, and then activating against some of these opportunities that we see coming into 2023 and beyond. I'm going to start with creativity, Billy. Have you seen a change in how companies and brands are starting to experiment with new ways to create experiences? What signs can you see of disruption to our definitions of what entertainment is and what experiential could be? That's a fascinating question. I mean, I think the word experiential means something different than it did a year ago. If you had a marketing toolkit and you looked at your tactics for the year, you had to fill this box where you had a pop-up to sell your product. And I think that was not only kind of lazy, but it's not scalable. And I would argue that it doesn't always work. And I think in this world where you can't just throw in the tactic to do a pop-up at Times Square, you actually have to think about the consumer and the context in which they experience your products and trying to get them to feel your product and feel your brand story in a much different way. And I, I think it's really hard, to be honest. But I think in the long run, it's actually going to lead to smarter marketing because we're thinking about consumers' needs in the context versus, again, just tick the box on doing something at Times Square or the Melbourne train station. I think experiential means something much different now. And also, I guess, creating an experience for disruption and sort of the shock factor versus creating something that really, to your point, taps into human needs and the context that people are in. So... At the beginning of COVID, you know, there was a moment where every TV ad, and this is probably all around the world, was talking about this new normal. And there seems to be no acknowledgement of what consumers actually need. And we used a human need framework of what do people need, right? Like they, they need safety, they need security, they need family. And we outlined this idea of they need distraction. One idea we did was for a bourbon brand, or when the Kentucky Derby got canceled, the horse race, we actually created a virtual Kentucky Turtle Derby and we ran a race and it got hundreds of thousands of views. And even just simply thinking, like you said, Joe, I think it's a a lost art in marketing to think about human needs. 
And just thinking about how human needs have changed, I think that's the compass to follow in terms of creativity. What are the routines? What are the needs within those routines? And how can you follow the consumer? And I think that's where the, the starting grounds for ideas can come from. And now that we're coming out of this time of, you know, being very conscious of how people are feeling, this sort of sensitivity around 2020 and the shared crisis that we've all been in, coming out of that and coming back into what will be a recovery, you know, we'll be able to connect to each other once again and have shared experiences and to be able to enjoy ourselves again, sort of unbridled. It opens us up to lots of really great opportunities. So Jonathan, I'd love to hear from you about what that means for travel, because people have always turned to particularly leisure travel when it comes to exploration, experimenting, connecting to foreign worlds, discovering, and that's been quite an impacted industry. What are we likely to see in creativity and discovery in the travel world? I think it's a little too soon maybe to provide any definitive views on you know how certain things or travel will look like in the future. But I am very positive, and as an opportunist, I do see this as an exciting time for us to help redefine the way we travel for the better. So one of the things, or rather the trends that we've been seeing right now, is that sustainable travel cannot exist in a silo, and it's obviously heavily influenced by other changes in lifestyles. One area that we see the most change post-pandemic is probably in the way that we work. Many organizations are breaking the traditional rules of 9 to 5 workdays at the office, and we think that this is going to be here to stay. So that opens up the possibility of a new type of travel, you know, namely the vacation. If you think about your last vacation, right, oftentimes the duration of that is limited by the number of days you have off. By allowing for vacation, we remove that restriction and allows for much longer travel periods. And in terms of how that will impact the way that we discover and we enjoy and we experience things, is that, you know, travelers can now spend longer periods of time at a destination without that time limitation anymore. And this would allow for them to better connect with the people and to appreciate that culture. And it also addresses the need for connection, you know, something that we all lack during this uh, pandemic. And even more so, it can also help local businesses to flourish as more travelers start to live like locals and be part of that experience. What you're speaking to there is almost an opportunity to extend your vacation because you can work out of anywhere. Yes, that's the idea. You're making more purposeful travel. And when you're actually there, you're also able to help the local economy much better because we assume that you're going to be living more like a local, perhaps, borrowing a term from Airbnb. Jonathan, I'm actually doing that later this week. If I'm being completely honest, I'm going down to the beach and I'm working half of the time and then enjoying myself the rest of the time. So I can definitely see that really picking up with a lot of people. The other thing that we've seen a lot of, which you touched on, which was traveling domestically and staying close to communities and really immersing yourself in what's to offer nearby. Are you seeing a lot of domestic domestic travel and exploration of what's close to you? Yeah, and in fact, a lot of signs of early travel recovery was mainly fueled by domestic travel. And there's also this new appreciation of what's available in your backyard. So you learn to re-explore your own communities, your own backyards. But at the same time, I think it probably helps us to really rethink the purpose of travel. 
You touched on something there, which we've highlighted as well in this shift, the broader umbrella of revenge spending and sort of revenge enjoyment. We've come out of this time of being very restricted. So it's live by numbers that we're sort of breaking out of and the revenge is that we can enjoy ourselves, we can do something for ourselves. Billy, I'd love to know about how you see that sort of playing into people's mindsets and what you were saying before around human needs and what it could be unlocking. You know, human behavior to me is kind of like a pendulum, right? If you go on a diet for a really, really long time, there's all this philosophy and psychology around you're naturally going to go back and you're just going to splurge. I'll be really interested to see the economy around like connected travel of not just going to a place and experiencing it by yourself or in your small group, but meeting up with other people and other small groups. I'm comfortable predicting there will be more accountants at the next Burning Man than ever before. The people that never would have done that before, I think a lot more people are going to be willing to just totally throw themselves out there. So I'm interested to see the opportunities for brands, if your brands fit, but also just the economies that might pop up, because it seems like something just waiting to happen. Jonathan, Billy, you both touched on connection and this desire coming out of this restriction time to reconnect with the world, but also with other people. Trevor, I'd love to hear about, you know, what you're seeing in that space because you're in a slightly different position being privy to what's happening across different industries, different platforms, and really digging into human behavior. How are you seeing that sort of consumer desire to reconnect coming to life? It's really interesting because I think what the pandemic has done is given everyone a collective pause and it really makes you think about what you value. And so I think that in some ways, even though we've been separated and apart, you've seen a lot of interest from brands in connecting individuals despite not being able to physically be around one another. So I think that it's interesting to to think of it in the ways that we might start to segment connection in the future. So instead of thinking about in-person versus virtual as the two types of connection and being together, that type of thing gives me hope um, that those kind of enduring connections comes to fruition more in a way that uh, you know makes it easier to connect with the people that we want to connect with. You've done a beautiful segue there into something that I'd love to have a chat about, which is this hybridization of virtual and physical experiences. So virtual reality in particular has been a great catalyst for innovation in 2020, and it's predicted to you know, grow 37% by 2027. So I'm keen to hear how that will come to life in collaboration with physical experiences. Jonathan, is there anything that you're seeing in that space? At least for us right now, I think when it comes to real spaces, nothing beats the actual thing, right? So we obviously have tested out VR for some of our destinations, for some of our in-cabin experiences, but people will always want to travel. But I do see an opportunity for us to maybe blend reality and fantasy. I believe that that's where the value of VR actually comes in. So I do think that this is an opportunity for brands to maybe come in to kind of fill that gap because there's no way of trying to replicate something where the real thing is actually better. So why don't then we create something that's not available in reality? VR is interesting because it was the next big thing like 10 years ago. I think all of us were expecting people to be sitting at homes and wanting to go through a branded experience in their living room with their VR headset. That was the future we were sold 10 years ago and we're not even close to it. Um, and, and part of it is because of the pure cost and maybe as as people are getting more skilled as engineers in the space, it becomes more scalable. I think the things I'm interested in, and, and Jonathan, I agree with you, is like 
how you know nothing beats the real world but how can we stop thinking of vr as a replacement but an addendum and a sweetener one of the best experiences i've had was being at the louvre in paris back when you could travel and you get handed a nintendo ds and if you're intrigued to go a step deeper if you're willing to lean in a bit more to this beautiful museum that's something that can give you information and backstories and videos that go into it and I think that to me is still a space that people aren't exploring enough. What are people already doing and where are opportunities to maybe make that experience better for the heavy users versus trying to create these kind of insular, isolated experiences? Because right now that's just too big of a leap for people. So that's where I see the creativity lies. As an agency person that pitched bad VR ideas for a while, <laughs> and Joe, you've probably seen a ton of them. It's like, where can we show up where they are? What can they do with something that they already have? And then maybe in 10 years when Oculus has penetration of 80%, maybe we'll get there. I think Billy really hit on the point, which is being purposeful. I had a similar experience, strangely enough, in France as well. Um, I was in Avignon for work and I went to the Papal Palace and they had this really amazing kind of mixed reality experience where you have an iPad and you scan a symbol on the ground and then looking through the iPad, it would show you virtually with overlays what that would actually look like. So the tapestries that would have been there and the altar and the paintings on the wall and murals and all of those types of things. So it really brought the space to life in a way that you just can't experience because all of that has been stripped over time. So I can imagine a lot more in the mixed reality side of things where you're adding additional, as they were saying, layers to an experience or really making an experience better in some way, but it has to be purposeful. The one that I was reading about this week was Six Flags, the amusement park where you went on a roller coaster and you had your Samsung VR glasses that sort of just enhanced that experience as opposed to just being a completely virtual experience. But I think that, Jonathan, you're right. Nothing beats the real thing. How are we going to start to see sensory play a bigger role when we think about people really wanting to create, to feel, to experience things and using touch and smell and creating this fully immersive environment feels like something that's been definitely under leveraged and that people will be wanting to experience more of. Trevor? Yeah, that's something that we've been talking about for a long time, just working in foresight for quite a while. A great place to start on this is Dr. Charles Spence out of Oxford uh, has done a lot of research in this space on multi-sensory experiences. And I think it was a whiskey brand. They had different themed rooms where the uh, fixtures in the room, the shape of things. So one might have been red and plush and rounded corners. The other one was woodsy and had ferns and trees around. And they could influence the experience of the whiskey, which was actually the same in every room, up to, I want to say it was about 60%. So I think there's way more room to go in this instance. And I think it's everything from the packaging on something all the way to the actual experience of the product or engagement that comes with it. So I think the more we can tap into those types of experiences and, and really build on the senses, the more we're just going to have a more immersive and frankly fun world to live in. Yeah, this idea of playing with the senses, I think, is really interesting because to your original question, Joe, of like, how can you create something like that when people can't leave their home? There's this moment in your day now where you have to transition from work Billy to home Billy. And it's that moment where people are like changing their lighting and they're putting on music and they're pouring themselves a drink. And we've been trying to play creatively with that of how can we enhance it with things that people already have? 
Is it as simple as telling Alexa that you're home and it's you're making an old fashioned so that we can create a playlist that potentially goes with that? I think that sort of challenge and trying to figure out how to create a sensorial experience when people are stuck at home has been a really interesting one. And I'm never going to go to work for five days a week again in my life. I'm going to be home more. I think that sandbox is really interesting and one that we've done a lot of learning on in 12 months, but I think we're just cracking the surface of it. They're also doing that from an enjoyment and an experience perspective as well. So a lot of great opportunities there for immersion. And I would say connected to that thought is more of those high-end experiences. So we know that luxury is due to rebound. Luxury as an industry went back to its 2015 sales because of the pandemic. Because with luxury, you know, it's so important to touch and to feel a little bit special as well when you're in store. What is luxury and premium for people? What are those more exclusive experiences in the new world and how could you tap into that across multiple industries. Jonathan, I'd love to hear about how that would play out in the travel industry because travel is one of those things where it feels a little bit more rare and special. So I think for us, especially in Japan, you know, we have the benefit of having you know world-class customer service. I think many times the enjoyment of that product is actually part of that purchase process, right? You know, the anticipation, the eagerness of actually getting that, you know, going down there, like buying a car, perhaps, you know, being able to test that out, picturing yourself in in that car. So I think for us, we really wanted to kind of take a step back to relook at this entire process because travel essentially is really, you know, bringing you from point A to point B, right? Like very rarely do people, you know, look forward to, the flight experience, for example, to be completely frank here, right? You're looking forward to getting to that location, to doing whatever that you need to do. But then for us, you know, especially, you know, in the Japanese philosophy and mentality, you know, the joy is part of the journey. So we want to make that true for the travel experience, like as well, you know, how can we stop dreading that airport experience or dreading that, you know, long flight to somewhere else, but just enjoy it from the moment that, you know, you're ready to travel. There's so much for us to take away from that as well, Jonathan. I really love that because when you're thinking about going and buying chocolate, eating chocolate sounds very enjoyable, but that whole shopping experience of having to get into your car and then trying to get into in and out of the supermarket as fast as you possibly can is not so enjoyable. So there's a lot that we could also do and making it a journey towards the joy of having chocolate. The other thing that it makes me think of is the younger generation. So younger generations are due to drive over 180% of the growth in the luxury market coming into the next few years. Is there a different way that we should be speaking to them when we're talking about luxury and premium experiences, Trevor? I think for Gen Z specifically, um, I see the biggest gap there. Uh, One of the things is kind of just access. So what their expectation is in terms of access um, to things is a lot, you know, broader than probably older generations that have been limited by a world without virtual and not being able to, uh, you know, have a direct message sent to your favorite celebrity or whatever that might be. And then the other side of it, I think, is um, that kind of comes to mind for me is just the social consciousness of the younger generation. And we, we think about what their expectations are around that. I, I think that they won't be willing to trade off having a luxury experience or, you know, the the clout that comes along with that or the identity performance without recognizing that, you know, you can't really misstep on any of the things that they care about. So in some ways, luxury might just be brands that 
you know, have this sterling reputation on all the social causes of the moment, as opposed to maybe even something that's focused on, you know, the price of something. Yeah. One of the things that we've highlighted is, you know, with the joy of misbehaving, it's sort of misbehaving in a meaningful way, particularly for the the younger generation. It's, it's what I'm calling purposeful hedonism. Um, Billy, I'd love to hear your thoughts about, you know, what when you're speaking to Gen Z or you're, you're trying to, you know, create campaigns that really resonate with this younger audience where you're still playing up, you know, enjoyment and fun and escape and all of those things that they're going to lean into and luxury. How do you balance that with, you know, bringing a little bit of meaning and, you know, leveraging the causes that they're really passionate about? Talking to this younger audience and how they view brands, I think it's going to change everything, to be honest. And the one thing I was thinking about in terms of misbehaving and to tie it back to connection is this like communal connection that has resulted in upheaval. Radical transparency is something that we've talked about for years. I think the last 12 months just like absolutely accelerated that. And what we're seeing with like this Wall Street bet situation, I think is an example of action that communities can take for a joint cause. And it's something I'm going to be interested in as we think about building real brands and brands where, you know, our communication that goes out to consumers is baked into who we are, because I think more so than ever, people smell that BS before where you put out a message and it doesn't tie back to who you are here. It's like it shows up on Reddit the next day. And I think we're going to see people kind of bring that to the forefront. So I don't have a a magical spell for the balance, but I'll be really, really interested to see for the brands that get it wrong. And that's what keeps us up at night is to making sure that we're doing as much as we can to do it right. I'd love to shift gears and talk a little bit more about rule breaking. So that's a big thing that we've highlighted with the joy of misbehaving particularly moving into the future where rule breaking is beyond thinking about things differently and being challenging and being experimental and creative. It's moving sort of towards people really rethinking why things are the way that they are and could they be different? Could they be better? Um, And so here we're seeing a lot of things that will likely play out like co-creation of products and services with the consumer or the KOL. Um, breaking a lot of the conventions and the expectations, um, you know, diversification of the way that things come to life, you know, capturing different identities and different cultures, and definitely this blend of traditional cultures and modern cultures. And Jonathan, you know, with the Japanese culture, which is very traditional, how are you starting to see, you know, those modern experiences and this fluidity of experimentation start to come to play? You know, when we talk about Japan, it's always a need to establish that, you know, there are a lot of cultural and societal norms in the country that are probably a little slower than the rest of the world. And and so a lot of the changes that we're seeing today in Japan, you know, it may not be groundbreaking by rest of the world standards. It's actually pretty huge there. That is a fundamental change in the mindset in terms of how, you know, such a workaholic society like Japan is also looking to reevaluate how the work life could actually look like. And because of that, there's a lot of repercussions, you know, in terms of economics and in terms of the way people spend and the experiences that they have. And this reverberates across, you know, all the different industries. And I think maybe from a brand perspective, like as well, I think you touched on co-creation quite a bit, right? And in the past, a lot of 
times, you know, we basically told people where to go, where the best parts of the country is, right? We taught you how to live like a local. But, you know, right now, a lot of them are actually creating their own itineraries, you know, and we as the brands, as the destination marketers, we're really just there to empower them to get these experiences. I'd love to hear about how that comes to life in the campaign world, <laughs> Billy, um, because it's the difference between, you know, uh, serving something to a person, so serving them an ad or serving them an experience, even if it's really relevant to them, versus co-creating or creating an experience with someone. Are you starting to see a little bit more of that? I think you hit the nail on the head and I think it's going to be really interesting when you think about luxury brands, on the agency side, the job would be you spend all your energy to create desire to buy this product, right? And I think what we're talking about is this, like, we need less creative ideas to sell products and more creative ideas on how to use products and brands. And I think it's getting into and listening, like you had said, Jonathan, about how people are, are authentically using products and brands. And it seems like something that's so obvious, but we all are on the marketing end and we've all been in the boardrooms where decisions are made. And I think there's a whole world of creativity and there's this this end-to-end -end consumer experience that we're not focused on in the marketing or agency world on the other end of how people are using it and how can we make new use cases, which means, you know, to talk about the flywheel, perhaps let's drive our volume and things of that nature. I, I'm fascinated by that aspect of marketing and applying agency creatives to think on the other side of buying the product, because I think there's a lot, a lot, lot, lot that can happen there. Thanks for dropping in the flywheel in there. We love to talk about the flywheel. <laughs> How much further do you think we can take that if we think about advertising campaigns and breaking outside of the formula and really challenging ourselves as marketers to do things differently and to really spurn the creativity that people are looking for? I think we need to think more like product designers and design thinkers. And that's that's my buzziest word I'll, I'll use for this podcast. And you can deduct points for it. But um, if we were to think like product designers, we would be looking at these sort of end-to-end -end experiences. So let's just take the example of going to the movies. Um, an advertising agency would get briefed on getting people to buy tickets for that movie. The agency would go away and they'd create these big ads about the experience of the movies and they would do some lower funnel stuff using cookies to say, we can tell these people like action movies, yada, yada, yada. Job done, creativity done. What about the idea of briefing the ad agency on the moment they buy the ticket to the moment they leave the theater? And you look at every single experience within that as a consumer touch point for your brand and something you can disrupt. And I think there's a hundred briefs for creatives from the moment they walk into theater to the moment that they walk out of it. And that's the sort of stuff that I don't think anybody's thinking about. So we've been talking for a little while about enjoyment and pleasure and luxury and all of these wonderful things. One thing that we know is that we're headed into a K-shaped recovery. So not everybody's going to be benefiting from all of these wonderful things equally. There will be a different evaluation that people make of how they want to spend their money and how they want to spend their time. Trevor, I'd love to hear from you about, you know, what does the shift really mean in the recovery, post-recovery period? So, you know, seeking pleasure and seeking those premium experiences, is this a temporary post-pandemic blip or is this something that's likely to stay? 
So um, Billy touched on this earlier. I think a lot of great minds have come together on this. Um, it's something that we talk a lot about when we talk about foresight and, and the forces at play, but COVID's not really creating a brand new world. What it's doing is either accelerating or decelerating or morphing these forces that already existed before 2020. So I think that when people want to break the rules, when they want to bend them, when they want to rethink what kind of exists today um, and imagine what it could be, I think there's there's a lot that was already happening there that's just kind of the confluence of things happening at the same time. I think there's three pretty large ones, though, that are important. One is that there's kind of this generational shift that was already underway. You know, millennials are moving into these kind of peak life stage moments, like having children and buying homes. And, you know, we're in positions of power in companies and making decisions and influencing things. And then you have that social consciousness being driven by Gen Z. So we talked about that a little bit before um, thinking about, you know, things that, you know, might be better or fair or more equitable for everyone and how we could do that. And then the last thing I'll layer onto it, but this technological revolution, and let me be clear, Tech is not a trend. I think that when we look around um, and we experience our lives, especially in certain markets, we think like, wow, it's everywhere. It's really not. Like there's so much more space to grow. Um, and and I think as, you know, computing becomes more ubiquitous and it's less about screens and things in our face, you know, it, it's going to increasingly digitize the world around us. So I think what all of that means is that, you know, we have people that are in positions of power and decision making now and, and starting to grow into that. And they see the world around them and they think, you know, this can't be the way that it has to be um, for a number of reasons. And so that that right there is the catalyst for thinking about ways to do things differently. So for me personally, like I, I truly believe that the joy of misbehaving is inherently creative and it's actually really inherently optimistic, um, you know, kind of way of navigating the world as well. So I, I think that you know, from my optimistic side, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this continuing to evolve because I think it has roots in what was happening already. And I, I don't want to dismiss, though, kind of the darker side of change, which is that it, you know, upends power dynamics and it creates new winners and losers. And often with that, you, you've seen, and I think this is more uh, recent in, in some places like the U.S., where it, to some people, it seems like the benefit of one is coming at the cost of another. Um, whereas I think where people are moving and, and where I'm hopeful is it seems like there's that individuality part of of uh, kind of breaking the rules and looking for something different, but also this collective idea of doing that together and trying to make something that's more beneficial for everyone. I think the scary part is people aren't even breaking rules. They're doing something much more dangerous and they're asking, why are these rules? And I think that's 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 where you start to think about the un, like unlimited potential of this. So like from a human behavior lens, I think we're going to have a group of people, Gen Z specifically, who are already we're already fighting for universal income. We're talking about the fact that they're 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 going to say they're going to work from home, but why why work from home when you can work from a beach house? And they're going to challenge employers from that sense. I think the this generation is starting to realize like why are there rules and they're starting to break rules and they're starting to question rules and to tie that to creativity and this is a quote i'm i'm not smart enough to come up with it but my favorite comedian his name is gerald jared carmichael and he said once you realize there are no rules the better the art can be and he applied that to the art of comedy because he would stand up on stage and do jokes with a notebook which was like blasphemous at the time like you would never do a tv special and look at your notes but he did it 
consumers are going to play in a world where there are no rules. And the sooner we as marketers, as brands, as agencies can figure out there are no rules, the better the art can be or the better the marketing can be of why do we have to sit on the side of creating desire for brands and let's focus elsewhere? Why do we have to focus on communications? We can focus elsewhere. I think, you know, the the, the world's our oyster uh, because, you know, there, there are no rules. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of touch on that like as well, because I think Trevor and Billy did such a great job touching on individuality and also breaking like the rules. And maybe speaking from someone uh, living in, in Asia, you know, where we always see that the collective good is often prioritized above individual needs. You know, individuality often, you know, is seen as a, a bad word like of sorts, so it comes with a negative connotation. But, you know, because of the pandemic, we actually do see signs of individuality emerging in very interesting ways. We see an emphasis on personal well-being and prioritizing things that really matter, like health and family. And it's very important to note this increase of focus on individuality is not at the expense of others. It's just a change in the mindset. We are starting to realize over here that in order to do what's good for others, you know, we first need to focus on ourselves. So we're really starting to rethink what productivity looks like and what personal well-being is in Asia when it comes to breaking the rules and discovering this level of individuality. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. This is one of the most exciting shifts for our category because we bring smiles to faces through better moments and that's exactly what people will be seeking more of. It's also one of the most important shifts when we think about what's to come for this entire decade of discovery and exploration. People are open to what's new, what's fused and what's unique. So how can we break some of the rules to connect with this shift? What is the one thing that you are most looking forward to reconnecting with? How can we all reimagine how pleasure creativity and making new rules can start with our brands and our products? A huge thank you again to our guests for joining us today and to you, the listener. This is Joe. Stay curious. Stay curious.